Yeah, that was our intro. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, anti-sortition rally organizer, Jeremy Ruggles. It's time we take a stand. We can no longer choose our leaders randomly. That's what anti-sortition would be. Thank you. All right. Thank you for that micro ted talk that was funny wasn't it classic are you guys classic opening imagining our listeners just all yucking it up right now laughing out loud cool who else is here we're also of course joined by the former treasurer for the quad cities chapter of the reanimator fan club peter cook r.i.p Stuart gordon true true so this week, Jeremy is kind of leading the charge on the album, but this is a, it's an album that's close to all of our hearts for various reasons. So in a way, this is kind of a, all three of us are hosting this episode, but Jeremy, would you like to tell us what the record is and what our first song is going to be? Yes, the record. There was a time when people didn't say this man's name in hushed reverence, but this is just who, where we're at now. Uh, Willie Nelson, Stardust. Mm. Mm. And we're just going to start with the song Moonlight in Vermont. And then I'll say why I picked that one first after the song. Sounds good. Let's hear it. What are we, what are we playing? Moonlight in Vermont. It's like you don't even listen. I think you cut off on my end. So if you said it before, I didn't hear it. <laughs> Moonlight in Vermont affected everybody. What Captain Beefheart said. <laughs> Pennies in a stream Falling leaves a sycamore Moonlight in Vermont I see finger waves trails on a mountainside Snow light in Vermont Telegraph cables sing down the highway Travel each bend and road People who meet in this romantic setting are so hypnotized. 
ties my love have been saying for a while that we wanted to do a genuine country album on this show and we've now picked Willie Nelson and it's funny that this is an album of standards that he's doing covers they're all covers correct correct yes yeah and this what this was on the country chart so it was marketed as a country album still I mean for obvious reasons but yes it is still not quite a genuine country album <laughs> we're not there yet but i'm happy we're doing this one yeah it's just funny that we've come close now with this and the the frankie lane record but not quite authentic yet yeah true well i picked that song because that song kicked off this album being made and i want to get more into that but i feel like we need context i'm gonna back up the truck give you the rundown on the man himself Maybe people know these things, maybe they don't. I think Sean mentioned it earlier. Dude's old. He's 86. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's been around. And yet somehow looks even older than 86, though. True. He was born in the Great Depression in 1933. That's... Wow. That's, that's amazing. Unbelievable. And he just a really capture the fact that Willie is doing what he was always meant to do and can't seem to ever stop doing. He wrote his first song at the age of seven, was in his first band by the age of 10, and was touring as the front man and guitar player for Bohemian Polka by the time he was in high school. <laughs> Bohemian Polka was a, ba- a band he was in? Yeah, he was like the front man of Bohemian Polka, and they were going on regional tours. That would have been... That's when Willie was authentic. Yeah, that would have been like the <laughs> late 40s. Yeah, so just like post... In the years after World War II, he was out there doing hitting the road with a country band. Bohemian Polka, maybe they weren't a country band. <laughs> no, they were a polka band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But he joined the Air Force and then left because he had back problems very quickly. Then he did a bunch of odd jobs, DJing mostly on Texas radio. He would sing in honky-tonks at night. And then he left for Nashville to try and make it big. In the 60s, he had a string of hits that he wrote the song for crazy that ended up being done by patsy Mm. klein was the largest of those yeah i remember hearing when i was younger that he had basically just written that to like pay rent that month yeah (laughs) and it you know became huge hit yep and he kind of got typecasted in nashville as someone who could write songs well but wasn't a performer wasn't like the main feature so 
in 1970, after spending the 60s kind of in obscurity as just a songwriter in Nashville, he got divorced, and then his ranch burned down, and his albums he was making then, his solo albums were not doing well either, and he took this as a sign to retire in 1972. Whoa. Which is why <laughs> Willie Nelson never made another song after 1972. Yep, and no one's, story ends there. no one's talked about him in years until we discovered this rusty old gem of music. <laughs> no, no, this yeah, is really. not the facts of the case. <laughs> he retired in 1972 and then began in 1973 writing music again. Arguably even better music. And this all happened in Austin, Texas. And this is where I feel like this is the important context to me beyond him not making it as a front man yet. And then he moved to Austin, Texas and started playing at this place called the Armadillo World Headquarters, which was in fact a rundown armory that was in terrible condition. And they were known for, mostly known for tolerating cannabis use in their building at a time when nowhere else in Texas was going for that. <laughs> Perfect for Willie. Perfect for Willie. And they were kind of the meeting ground for this sort of cosmic cowboy, they called it, genre or progressive country. And then later on, they were kind of a place where the punk scene was also making itself known in Texas. So that heavily shaped Willie Nelson's voice and essentially served as the breeding ground for what became outlaw country. At around this time, he convinced Waylon Jennings to leave Nashville and move out to Austin because he said he'd found this following for music that represents them that is sort of this cowboy hippie hybrid that made up Austin, Texas at the time. Yeah, I know just a year before the album that we're listening to today came out, David Allen Coe, another outlaw country artist, wrote the song Willie Whalen and Me that was all about in Texas, the talk turning to outlaws, them being the three at the vanguard of that. Yeah, they really, yeah, they were the beginnings of it. It's also interesting to look back on Waylon and Willie's early career and just see like some early television appearances from them because they're very clean cut, normal looking. <laughs> you know, you, you can tell they're trying to make it in Nashville the same way that everybody else is. And it was really a, a revolution for these guys to just be like, actually, we're going to be exactly who we are, you know, the, the good and the bad, all of our flaws and make way more money by doing that. Like, it was just an unheard of thing for any part of the music industry at that point. Yeah, I have some of Waylon Jennings' earlier stuff, and he's doing, like, MacArthur Park on there and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Nothing like Honky Tonk Heroes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let me play another jam, because we wanted to do quite a few of these. Let the people hear the Willie. Yeah, nonstop jams. I want to do Blue Skies, because I just yes. want to. I love it. It's so good. Especially because like Blue Skies in its more traditional version is one of the cheesiest songs of the songs that he covered. And his version is just like almost unrecognizable for how soulful it is. 
yeah, there's something about the way that it's so melancholy and the lyrics are so melancholy. I'm sorry, vice versa. The melody is so melancholy and he's singing, it's supposed to be sounding joyful. Yeah, he shifted it. It's originally a major key song, which people perceive as being happy. And he changed it harmonically to be a minor key song that gives it that kind of melancholy thrust that really recontextualizes it as he does amazingly on this album to give it a whole new meaning. I think we buttered up our listeners enough if they're not familiar with it. skies smiling at me nothing but blue skies do I see blue birds singing a song nothing but blue skies from now on I never saw the sun shining so bright never saw things going so right noticing Days hurrying by when you're in love, my how they fly by blue days, all of them gone, nothing but blue skies from now on. That one's a really good example of Willie's excellent guitar playing that I feel he sometimes gets recognized for, but not nearly enough. And that's also the sound of Trigger. I'm sure you guys are both aware of his his infamous guitar, the only guitar he's played for decades that is now, it's got a giant hole in it and looks totally beat up, <laughs> yeah. but still sounds amazing. And the- Yeah, I've seen pictures of it. The very unique thing about Trigger, as opposed to most acoustic guitars used in country, is it's a nylon string. You can kind of hear that- Yes. That tone that's different about Willie's, what's different is that the strings are not metal. They're made of nylon. Mm -hmm. Which is typically more of a classical or Spanish guitar style. It's, yeah, it's very rare in most forms of popular music. Yeah, most country especially, you want that twang. You want the metal string pinging on you. But he's an outlaw. He doesn't follow the rules. He's a rebel. He's a rebel. He's a rebel. Never ever be any good. Yeah, that song 
was one of the first ones that really pulled me into Willie Nelson when I was younger and picked up like a generic greatest hits of some kind. And that was on there. And I, yeah, that, that guitar tone, the sound, the arrangement of that, just everything really spoke to me. I was probably 18 or 19 years old and just absolutely was just enraptured with uh, Willie Nelson from that point forward. I quickly wanted to address a thing that was mentioned in the last section. You know, you said in, in 72, he was considering retiring and then, you know, came back just a year later in 73. But the string of records he did after that point is insane. I just want to read this list real yeah, quick. Yeah, that's what I was going to get so, to next, but do it. Do it. Okay. All right. <laughs> I got you. So Shotgun Willie, Phases and Stages, Redheaded Stranger, The Sound in Your Mind, The Troublemaker, Two Lefty from Willie, Waylon and Willie, then Stardust in 78, One for the Road with Leon Russell after that, then Willie Nelson sings Christofferson, and then his Christmas album in 79, Pretty Paper. Like all of those are amazing records. True. And he, That's, him and Waylon <laughs> basically invented outlaw country in that, you know, run of albums there. Yep. Another interesting little tidbit from that period Waylon, his manager, went to jail because Waylon decided to ship himself a large stash of cocaine and his manager took the fall for it and Willie thought that that was so cool of his manager that he fired his own manager and hired Wayland's manager. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> who, who was in prison at the yeah. time. <laughs> He's like, this is real. This is outlaw. Yeah. True. I remember hearing, you know, cause Willie is notorious for his cannabis use. And I remember what I would call a stoner fact as in the types of things you hear when you're sitting around getting high with people when you're younger, uh, you know, pre-phones when you can't verify anything. I, was, I remember hearing the fact that Willie Nelson had, had been busted in all 50 states for possession of marijuana. <laughs> I, I don't think it's true. I don't think that's true. I found no facts but, verifying that. Yeah, I haven't snopes, snopes it, but... <laughs> yeah, can neither confirm or deny, but it's a possibility. Yeah, I mean, it sounds real, right? Sure, yeah, I mean, I'm sure he's consumed cannabis in all 50 states. True. Very good point. <laughs> All right. So as Sean mentioned, crazy string of albums, basically defining the outlaw country genre. And then comes 1978 when he goes to his neighbor who lives a couple floors above him in an apartment complex who happens to be Booker T of Booker T and the MG's fame mm -hmm. and wants him to do an arrangement for Moonlight in Vermont, the first song we played a clip for there. And Willie was so blown away by it and just had a, a vision from making this with him that he wanted to do a whole album of old standards. It's such an amazing coincidence. And I had read that Willie had been wanting to do a record like this for a couple years before that point, but just like hadn't found the right person to make his vision a reality. So yeah, that chance meeting of of him and Booker T is so incredible and it makes a lot of sense too. I think the initial reaction to him working with Booker T is like, Oh, that's such a random thing. I can't believe it worked. But if you really dig into a lot of that stack sound, it was highly informed by a lot of American roots music. You know, it was a soul label, but there was a lot of folk and country and blues sounds kind of creeping into the work they were doing. So in a way, Booker T was like the absolute perfect person to do the arrangements for this album. 
True. And that's how Willie felt. And that is not how Columbia Records felt at the time. Yeah. yeah. Columbia Records was pissed. They said <laughs> that his fans wanted edgy cowboy songs. And if he wanted to do covers, he should do, you know, Grateful Dead or Bob Dylan, not music that their grandpa used to listen to. Yeah, this was really anachronistic for the time, like, I'm sure. Yeah, he basically went against the whole, like, brand and image he had formed for himself and taken a full left turn into kind of the opposite of that by doing old pop standards. Yeah, and it's also interesting because the move for an artist to do an album of pop standards is industry playbook for someone who is way past their prime kind of thing. They had their last hit was 30 years ago, but maybe we could get that senior citizen crowd back on board if we <laughs> do these old pop tunes. So that just such a strange, rebellious move in every way. Like no one wanted him to do this. <laughs> and then it worked. It was huge. It was his like major breakthrough commercially, right? Yeah, this album was on the Billboard charts for 10 years straight. Yep. 540 <laughs> weeks is spent on the Billboard country chart. It went trip. It went more than triple platinum. Yeah, so they were way wrong. They majorly miscalculated its audience. Having the context of his early career and all of that, it kind of makes even more sense how they were pretty skeptical of this. You know, my initial thoughts when hearing that Columbia was against it was like, yeah, of course they'd be against it, but like, how can they tell Willie Nelson what to do? He's a legend. But then when you look at it, it's like he's only been a hit for just a couple of years and had spent 15, 20 years as a nobody before this, like a nobody that everybody thought there was no way he could be a star. So I could, I could really kind of understand how terrified they were. Like we just made this guy famous and he's about to throw it all away already. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't super famous either. His albums like Redheaded Stranger, uh, they garnered critical acclaim, but he wasn't like a top selling artist by any means at that point either. And that's five years into, sure. you know, getting some critical acclaim, but not being incredibly famous. Yeah. We're all born into the world where Willie Nelson is just a star. The three of us were all born into a world where he's pretty established and for various reasons has always been able to maintain a, a level of credibility or, you know, people that might not even like country music. I think, respect willie nelson oh totally yeah like johnny cash and willie nelson are the two things like i don't like country but those guys are okay i guess yeah <laughs> yep and willie said after well he said in his autobiography after this album he never had to argue with a record executive again they just gave him control <laughs> and he continued to do good work after this like you know sean as sean was pointing out it's it's not like he drops off and starts putting out mediocre crap after this. It, it, he continues to put out quality stuff. I even like uh, Always On My Mind, that album that was another pop record. Mm -hmm. He continues to still put out good records. Like he's He's got some duds in his catalog, obviously. I mean, he was dropping <laughs> one to two albums a year all the way through the 80s and 90s. But like there's incredible masterpiece gems all throughout every period of his career it's it's pretty incredible to dive into it yeah i was just checking out uh, another one that he did in the late 90s i think it's called night and day and it's an instrumental jazz album it's actually 
not dissimilar to this, except he's not singing on it, but doing other standards. Hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, of its time, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. So that, that one was 99 and the album right before it, 98, uh, Teatro is considered to be one of his absolute best late period records as well. Nice. Yeah. I I have not listened to that one. I really need to check and check that one out. I also really don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. So <laughs> Teatro. Sure. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this was his 22nd album when he put this out in 78. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he's got to be like pushing a hundred at this point albums. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, studio albums, according to Wikipedia, he's just dropped number 70 this year. Okay. <laughs> he's put out almost one per every year. He's yeah. Lived. I wonder if that counts all of his collaborations though. And that doesn't include live. Oh yeah, totally. So I want to play another cut Georgia on my mind, which is probably my favorite on this album. And I was reading that. Booker T had to talk him into doing this song. He really wanted to do it, but he felt that Ray Charles had already pretty much owned the song and Booker T had to talk him into it by basically saying like, yeah, Ray killed it with his version, but your version is something else. It's a different thing. You're not in competition with him. So true. Although there's similar parallels of no one wanted Ray to do his country and Western album as an R&B star, but he made it work. This is Georgia on my mind. Georgia. Georgia The whole day through Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind Georgia Georgia A song of you Comes as sweet and clear As moonlight Through the pines Other arms reach out Other eyes smile tenderly Still in peaceful dreams I see the road leads back to Georgia, Georgia No peace I find Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia 
all my mind. Yeah, that guitar tone there in that the keyboard in the intro, I'm not exactly sure what it is, if it's like a Rhodes or something, but yeah, the guitar tone is just so tasty. And something I noticed on the album that I mentioned from the late 90s, Night and Day, I don't know if Dave Matthews had like a bad influence on how people produced acoustic guitars, but it's on that one, it's more of like an electrified acoustic guitar sound that I just hate. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, and here, this is like 20 years earlier, and it's just like, no, you got the tone perfected here. Don't mess with that formula. Truth. Yeah. That's one of my favorite things about this record is just every single tone and instrument on here is just perfectly recorded and flawlessly played. Like, it's just one of the most masterfully recorded and executed albums I've ever heard. Yeah. Peter, do you know who the bass player is on this record? Uh, I do not, actually. There's a guy named Chris Etheridge. Do you know who that is? Oh, yeah, he's from the Flying Burrito Brothers, wrote Hot Burrito number one and two. I've talked about him on the, he was on that Phil Oaks album as well Yep, that we did. Yep, apparently he did a decent amount of work with Willie Nelson, but he's playing bass all over this record. Beautiful. I, yeah, he's, I mean, he's great. Hot Burrito number one and two are two of my favorite songs ever, and he co-wrote those, so. Yep. Yeah, he was also. Forever in my heart. He was also in the International Submarine Band. Yeah, yep, the earlier Graham Parsons band. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's Booker T himself on the organ sounds, and uh, yeah, and Willie Nelson's sister is playing most of the piano stuff. Yeah, and I guess she's been on the majority of his records ever since then too. Well, that explains why that organ just went straight to my heart. It was Booker T playing it. Yeah, the goat. So yeah, the record label was punishingly wrong. This was in fact embraced. <laughs> by everyone that's why you will find this record everywhere it sold like five million copies so yep quintuple platinum quintuple platinum it's cheap willie himself upon reflecting on it on the 30th anniversary he said good songs never die if it was good a hundred years ago it's still good today love it that was my impeccable willie impression right there (laughs) <laughs> it sounded real. I, th- yeah. I thought you had Willie over your house there for a second. Hell, I don't know. We never used him. I will comment a little bit about on the uh, cheapness of this record. I, I will say that it's it's definitely been starting to go up in price over the last few years. It should be a 3 to $5 record, but I wouldn't be surprised if you start seeing more and more places trying to squeeze 10 out of it. And it also still sells pretty quickly for how for how many copies there are in existence. Well, this brings up another point, Sean, that uh, I think it's too soon to tell. And when this episode airs in a couple weeks, it could be different. But uh, do you think the current economic situation might uh, set back these vinyl prices a little bit? Uh, Do you think it's going to have any long-term impact? I don't know. It's rising. It's just, it's so tough to say. Because, yeah, there's the whole, you know, pandemic that's going to potentially have long-lasting drastic economic repercussions and then there's the whole thing of the mastering plant catching on fire earlier this year yeah yeah that we haven't talked about that um let's just 
touch on that a little bit. I don't mean to like totally sidetrack us sure. in, with serious stuff, but yeah, they one of the major they make the acetates, right? Yeah, the acetates and lacquers. One of the major manufacturers of that was destroyed in a fire, correct? Yeah. Yeah, and it's something like they handled they handled like 80% of the masters for all American pressings, so people just aren't really sure how the industry is going to cope with that and how it's going to affect prices and availability and possibly even the amount of people that are even collecting vinyl. Like, you know, all of a sudden if if new vinyl goes up double or 50% in price because of supply and demand, how many people are going to stick with it at that point? That's something that ha- I kind of almost, I forgot that happened because more major things than that have happened since then. But I <laughs> like totally what? reminded me of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Well, it'll be interesting to see where these constantly rising prices of vinyl these last several years of LPs, we'll, we'll see where that takes us. But anyway, back to Willie, maybe this will be like a three to $5 record as it should be again in a year or two. Sure. Maybe Thriller will start going back down in price too. That'd be nice. Meh stockpile (laughs) so sean you mentioned you wanted me to play all of me which for me is maybe my least favorite song on the album but okay tell me why why do you want that one it's something that's kind of stood out to me in listening to this album over the years is i felt like a couple of the songs on here at least were ones that are more traditionally sung by female vocalists and I have no idea if this was intentional at all, but it seemed like kind of a, you know, further outlaw move on his part to, you know, not only perform in a genre that he wasn't supposed to, but to sing these supposedly effeminate songs, I thought was a really cool element. Yeah. And this song specifically, All of Me is, was most notably known for the uh, Billie Holiday version up until this point. I thought it was a cool element. I thought I was going to ask if uh, you know if Dinah Washington did any of the songs featured on this album. I'm almost positive she did, but I can't tell you which ones off the top of my head. It just, it, listening to it, it, you know, it brought back us featuring that album. Listening to this one, yeah, definitely cool. Well, here's all of me. Try not to pay attention to that kick drum because it drives me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> It's uh yeah Jeremy's the one that will hone in on very specific elements uh, of that that uh, will drive him wild. I love the kick drum on it so All of me Why not take all No good without you Take my arms I won't lose them Take my lips I'll never use them Your goodbye Left me with eyes to cry And I know that I Am no good without you you took part that once was my heart So why not take all of me? All of 
not take all of me Can't you see that I'm no good without you Take my arms, I won't lose them I feel like that song is a perfect example of how a lesser artist could have really just made it so cheesy and forgettable. The song starts a little more upbeat than some of the previous numbers. And you kind of think, okay, maybe this song's going to be a little cheesier, a little too fun and goofy. And then when the vocals come in, it just instantly strips down the arrangement and he provides this incredibly soulful and strangely laid back vocal style on the song. And then the guitar solo is very refined and very laid back as well. Like the song's just perfectly balanced for me. I love it. Well, the one thing out of balance would be the kick drum. (laughs) (laughs) Let's be honest. I don't think that most artists could pull this off, especially ones that are outside of their element, which he, in theory, should have been. He just, it fits so well. Like this whole album, I mean, like it really, it's a, not only does it work, but it was a huge commercial success. I I just think it's a phenomenal achievement and, and almost just a weird anomaly to have happened. Sure. The only other person I can think of that did this really well is actually Bob Dylan on his, uh, was it the triplicate album that he did just a few years ago? Um, but that one's not nearly as well loved as this. Yeah. I mean, it was so late in his career. I didn't really get as much attention as this one. He did the shadows. Was it shadows of the night? I heard that one uh, where he did a lot of old standards, uh, yeah, I think they were back to back or right around the same time. Yeah, that one was pretty good. I enjoyed it for what it was. So I think we were all going to talk about what this album means to us personally and maybe how we came across the album, a little bit of our, our personal history. Go ahead, Peter. Well, I can. Well, we can talk about this because it'll kind of connect to what Sean talks about, I'm sure. When Sean DJed my wedding uh, a couple of years ago, my father-in-law had requested the title track from this, Stardust. And it ended up being, I don't think we originally intended for it to be the final song of the night, but it ended up being uh, the last song that was played. And it was a great closer, great slow dance song to end the night of dancing. Sean did a great job DJing. Is a plug on the side if you're looking for a wedding DJ. Oh, thanks. DJ Hard Bargain is the one to call uh, or email, probably email. But <laughs> uh, DJ Hard Bargain at gmail.com, Sean. Is that That's correct? me. Hit me up. There you go. But I didn't realize until we were talking about doing this episode, I, I thought I should ask my father-in-law why he ch- requested that one. So I did. And he said it's linked to memories of his mother who had passed away almost 30 years ago. She was a great influence on him and including, you know, and how he acts in the world and with the music that she bought when he was growing up. And she bought this album and and played it. He was probably a young man of uh, 18 or 19 at the time. And uh, they played it on the briefcase hi-fi that they had in the house. And he just absolutely loved it. He was a rocker in the 70s, was rocking out to the hard stuff with Zeppelin and uh, stuff like that. So this was a departure for him, but it just totally spoke to him. He had been like a fan of Dave Brubeck as well, so not totally alien to him but yeah he loved the classic standards and so it was a way of having his mother present at the wedding it also meant something to my mother-in-law as well it turns out that the song stardust is memorable for her 
because her grandmother was acquainted with Hoagie Carmichael, who wrote Stardust through her sorority at Indiana University way back in the day. There's a real familial connection to Hoagie Carmichael and the song Stardust. Interesting. Yeah. So that is why you ended up playing this at our wedding, Sean. That's why. And uh, I think that it had its impact on you as well. Yeah, absolutely. I've got kind of a handful of connections to Willie and this record. So previous to that wedding, I had read people talking about how Redheaded Stranger is this masterpiece country album. And if you've never listened to Willie or country, that's the one to get into. And it's infamous for being the the token country album in people's collections who don't normally collect country. And I listened to, you know, the next copy that came in the record store and was like, whoa, this is good. I didn't realize that maybe I actually like country music. And then shortly after that, a copy of Shotgun Willie came in the store. And I actually liked that record even more from 73 and bought that and listened to both those albums a bunch and then kind of forgot about them for a few years, didn't play them as much. And then when the, the song Stardust was requested, I downloaded the album to play it and started listening to it in preparation and was just blown away at how good this record was. I'd kind of avoided it previous to that, just thinking like, oh, it's a later thing, probably a little cheesier. The song picks on there, you know, this can't be that great of an album and was just totally blown away. And it completely reignited my love for Willie Nelson. And I started listening to a lot more of his albums from this time period and collecting a lot more of his catalog. And then uh, the final connection is this uh, this album has since become the album that my daughter falls asleep to every single night. I oh wow yeah I started playing some of the songs off it years ago while putting her to sleep because it's just such a peaceful relaxing album and of all the stuff I've played for this one just connected with her the most and at this point it's part of the nightly routine like every single night this album plays start to finish for her. Wow, it's become a family fixture. Absolutely, very cool. Yeah, my connections are not nearly as deep and personal (laughs) i guess similar (laughs) similar to sean a friend of mine sold me his vinyl copy of redheaded stranger at a garage sale and was he basically had to talk me into it like i was like the aforementioned person sean had mentioned that willie nelson and johnny cash people might be into but country around that time early 2000s had morphed into a very gross corporate branded sort of thing so i thought i didn't like country until i listened to redheaded stranger i then went out and got the albums that are easiest to find of willie nelson which was stardust and always on my mind i've really latched onto always on my mind but stardust is also very great yeah always on my mind is one that my mother had on cassette when i was a youngster and so i that's how i first became aware of him i remember my mother showing me his picture and saying he kind of looks like charles manson doesn't he oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> well the i should mention this briefly the the cover is just like a picture of some stars and it says Willie Nelson Stardust on the back of the album is a picture of Willie Nelson wearing a top hat with a sort of Navajo themed band around it. He's got 
a grizzled, unshaven face, long, unkempt hair, and a very 1980s winter coat on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. It's a wacky picture. It super is. And I think it just fully plays into his whole just walking his own path on this. He's he's making this album that is traditionally in the territory of people making a final sellout album, but yet still just doing it exactly the way he wants to, regardless of other people's input. True. This is his way of being punk in 1978. Exactly. And this, we're approaching an hour now, so we got to wrap it up, but I just want to read an insane list of other Willie Nelson stories and things to know with very little context. I'm just going to read this and break everyone's brains. (laughs) Please do. Hit me with that list. Let's start with he survived a plane crash and walked away from it. After performing at the White House for Jimmy Carter, snuck up onto the roof with Jimmy Carter's son and smoked a doobie on top of the White House <laughs> with Jimmy Carter's son. I, I remember the, I remember hearing that story. That is, th- that's another stoner fact, and that's true, huh? Yeah, that is true. <laughs> that's another one you would hear in the smoking circles. <laughs> uh, awesome. Earlier on, he chased off his son-in-law with an M1 rifle after his daughter told him that he had assaulted her. He drove over there immediately and fired his rifle at him until the guy drove away, waited around for him to come back and put some more bullets into the guy's car. <laughs> Nobody was injured, but he took care of that situation. Wow, they didn't do they didn't feature Willie Nelson on the Tales from the Tour bus, did they, Sean? Or Jeremy, do you know? He was mentioned a lot because he's just so ingrained with the outlaw culture, but I don't think there was a specific episode about him. We need another season yeah. for that. Yeah, he was mentioned quite a bit in the Waylon Jennings episode of that. Yeah. He was also arrested at age 72 in 2010 for possession of six ounces of marijuana on his tour bus. <laughs> in every state. In, no, just in one state. <laughs> <laughs> at age, it wasn't like a class that year. it wasn't a class action arrest where all 50 states claimed it or something like that some technicality <laughs> unprecedented yeah <laughs> at age 81 he earned a fifth degree black belt in gong kwan yu Sol. Hmm. he also told crazy man alex jones that he believed that 9-11 was an inside job He bailed Dennis Hopper out of jail, who was arrested after consuming (laughs) a copious amount of LSD. The most interesting part of that is Willie Nelson did not know Dennis Hopper previously. (laughs) (laughs) He was just like, oh man, someone's in trouble for something I can understand. I'm going to help this guy out. Yep, and Willie drove him out of there through the desert while he was still tripping his brains out. Do you know what year that was? Do you have any idea? If I remember right, it was in the early 90s. Oh, <laughs> much more recent than I would have thought. I thought that was going to be like 1973 or something. No, like that. It, would, it was either the late 80s or early 90s, I believe. Huh. Wow. And that's that's after Hopper had like returned to like mainstream success with films, too. He also 
owed more money to the U.S. government than pretty much any American and recorded a set of albums just to try and pay off his tax bill. And he was inducted into the National Agricultural Hall of Fame for starting Farm Aid, a huge Mm. festival to help, you know, the average Joe farmer get by in the context of corporate farming that is, you know, destroying the earth. Oh yeah, Andy started a biodiesel company called BioWilly <laughs> that and converted all of his tour buses over to biodiesel because American farmers could grow the ethanol to support biodiesel then. That rules. Yeah, yeah, he's always been behind some good causes. Yeah, so that's uh even that's probably just scratching the surface. There's probably a lot more Willie notables out there. So there's uh there's no dirt on Willie. He's an actual living American saint. Or is that how we're going out? I didn't find any J- John Denver type tales. I mean, other than chasing his son-in-law off with a rifle, um, but nobody was hurt, and he was pretty justified in doing that. So. As far as I can tell, the dude's just a saint. I mean, I've done a fair amount of research and watched interviews and stuff, and I don't seem to find anything bad about him. I mean, he's he seems to have stated that he doesn't think he's always been the best person, but he's also been always very family oriented. You know, his his kids are all in his band. His wife travels on the tour bus with him, and his family just has seems to have nothing but great things to say about him. If you say so. I did read that he's had four marriages and seven children kind of spread out through those. Well, he's also like 180 years old, right? He's 86. Some, some of those wives just, <laughs> some of the wives just died of natural causes, right? <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> we were going to go out on Stardust. Is that correct? Sure. Yeah, go out on the title track. I want to thank my wife's folks, uh, Mark and Becky, for sharing their Stardust memories with us. I I had no idea about some of those connections until uh, doing research for this episode. This is a great episode where I can just contact you know family about uh, the details mm-hmm. <laughs> for it. I tried to convince Eloise to come on and talk about why she likes falling asleep to this record, but she wasn't having it. <laughs> We'll get her on someday. We'll we'll, we'll get her on this podcast. Uh, she'd sat in on one episode already. She's seen how we do this. Yeah. Oh, and I, I almost forgot to mention last week when I was doing a little bit of research for uh, Peter's pick, the Matthews Southern Comfort album, I was listening to that record and Eloise was in the room. She's like, Dad, I don't like this. Can you just put Willie Nelson on instead? <laughs> At a girl. It wasn't to the watch, was it? The really disturbing song with the crying that we completely neglected to mention on that episode. <laughs> we did that. Album, that song is terrifying. <laughs> I, I think that was her opinion. Like immediately from halfway through track one, she was just like, "Nope, put on Willie." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I love that Matthew Southern comfort, but uh, Willie's, you know, more rooted in uh, the country tradition. Uh, you know, he, he really came up in it. Um, I was going to comment on that that crying track on the album that when John Olson said that his his buddy wouldn't give him 
the recording of his wife crying uh, when we did the uh, episodes with John Olson and John Howard. I, I can see why you wouldn't want to listen mm-hmm. to a whole side of, uh, of someone weeping when just a couple minutes on a song is disturbing and unnerving. But anyway. Oh, yeah. So unnerving. <laughs> and I, I feel like I listen to a lot of uncomfortable music, but for some reason that track just really upset me more than normal. <laughs> yeah. I was alone when I first heard it and it just, I, that was the second most uncomfortable song for me after the Renaissance one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Well, I think we have digressed <laughs> enough and it's time to uh, go out on Stardust. This has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. Sometimes I wonder why I spend Thank you for listening to another fine episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. This is the part of the show where we give you hopefully interesting extra information, ways to contact us. And one that I don't believe we've mentioned yet is we have a specific Facebook group for this podcast now. That's called the I'd Buy That for a Dollar podcast page on Facebook, Facebook group. And if there's any information that we got wrong on here or something that you connect with the record that you wanted to mention, you could join the group and uh, talk about what you liked or disliked about this episode or this album. You can also share other dollar bin gems that you like. Maybe give us suggestions of albums to cover in the future. So yeah, that's the I'd Buy That for a Dollar Facebook group. See you there. Thanks for listening. When stars are bright you are in my arms The nightingale tells his fairy tale Of paradise where roses grew Though I dreamed in vain In my heart there always will remain My stardust melody The memory of love's refrain Mm -hmm.